This message is entitled, How Should Theology Be Studied? and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Our first question was, what is theology? The question this hour, how should theology be studied? And I want to spend the bulk of the hour talking briefly first about some spiritual requisites and secondly concerning some intellectual requisites for the study of theology. The spiritual requisites that I would like to list are four. And the basic one I want to suggest first. The basic spiritual requisite for the study of theology is faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There are two reasons stated there why a natural man is an inadequate theologian. Number one, he has the wrong attitude. Number two, he has no aptitude. His wrong attitude is demonstrated in the fact that these things to him are foolishness. That does not mean that he cannot figure out the moods and the tenses and the voices. It doesn't mean that he cannot count up how many times the word basiliah is used in Matthew as compared to ecclesia or something else. He can figure out all of those things, but when it comes to putting words and grammar together and getting sense out of it, it often makes nonsense to him. A natural man has a very difficult time with your desire, for example, to serve the Lord for a very minimal salary and to give up everything you've got for this delusive dream. And for him, these are merely fables fit for children. And for him, it's the opiate of the people, faith. These are statements of materialists, naturalists, people who know not God. And therefore, they think that what you are doing is moronic. The Greek word is moria. They are moronic to him. So he has the wrong attitude. And he doesn't have the aptitude. It says, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, God's Holy Spirit took the spiritual truths of God and put those truths in word forms, which word forms the holy apostles spoke in their own language, in their own literary qualities and so forth, and they are the word of God. And it takes a spiritual aptitude to understand spiritual truth. It would be as ridiculous to expect a natural man to understand spiritual truth as it would be to expect a blind person to judge a beauty contest or a deaf person to judge a music contest. He does not have the apparatus. So when a natural man waxes eloquent against your faith, don't get all uptight about it. He's doing the best he can with the apparatus he has. 
when an evolutionist says, we recognize today that the doctrine of spontaneous generation is no longer acceptable. However, here we are the products of spontaneous generation. And that must be true because the only alternative is special creation and that's impossible. Don't get upset with him. He's merely doing the best that he can do with the natural facility. And I don't care whether he has a 250 IQ. He cannot discern spiritual things. He cannot. That's the first requisite. So you see, I don't get really thrilled by what some men do. They say, oh, I studied under Bruner, or I studied under Bart. I could care less about studying under liberals or men who deny the word of God. For if they are unregenerate men, they don't have the first requisite for being a theologian. So to me, they are not theologians. That's the first requisite. The second requisite is an acceptance of the trustworthiness of Scripture. If you're going to first start out with a great big question mark in your mind as you approach the scripture, you just will give up. If your mind is because it's really basic to how we form our theology, there are four ways to go. First would be what we might call the evangelical answer to this problem of authority. The evangelical's answer would be that the scripture reigns as final authority. They would say the Bible is complete or sufficient and comprehensible or a little harder word, perspicuous. The Bible is complete or sufficient and comprehensible or perspicuous, clear as far as salvation and service are concerned so that we need not to have some other book that checks it. It is final authority. The Holy Spirit is held to be the author, the witness, and the expositor of the Scripture. And as the witness, he gives an inter-authentication to that which we are studying from the Word of God. Therefore, in the evangelical response, all tradition, all reason, all experience would be subordinated to what God's Word says. Everything else is secondary. That's the evangelical approach, we'll say. Now, secondly, the traditionalist answer to this problem of authority. The answer given by the traditionalist to the question raised above is scripture interpreted by official ecclesiastical sources and pronouncements? That is, church tradition. I'll give it to you again. The traditionalist would say that the meaning of the scripture is mediated to us by official ecclesiastical sources and pronouncements. In other words, the church reigns supreme over the scripture. Now notice carefully. Let's take Roman Catholicism as an example, for it's the greatest example of this viewpoint today. The Roman Catholic Church would believe that the Bible is 
the inerrant, infallible Word of God. They would have no problem with that in their dogma. But along with that, they would accept tradition as authority as well. So they have two authorities. They have the Bible and they have tradition. Now, immediately you can see a problem coming to the fore. What about when these two authorities do not agree? Then which one becomes final authority? So there must always be a final one. In Romanism, the church becomes final authority. And this is the logic for it. The church is the mother of the Bible. And if the church precedes the Bible and is the mother of the Bible, then obviously wherein the two differ, we must accept the interpretation of the church. So that ultimately, tradition reigns supreme over the Bible. That's what made, again, Martin Luther say, sola scriptura, not only sola fide, by faith alone, but sola scriptura, scripture alone, not scripture plus, but scripture alone is final authority. Now, lest you and I become too pious and perhaps supercilious in our evaluation of Roman Catholicism, let us remember that this problem affects most of us as well. For very, very often, though we would not agree with this principle in theory, we find ourselves practicing it in our daily life. Anytime when you bring one of your pet peeves or your prejudices or one of your traditions to the Word of God and make the Word of God say what your tradition says, by forcing the text, you have put tradition over the Bible. Down the South, for example, for many years, pastors were guilty of taking that ridiculous interpretation of the Genesis account of the sons of Noah and the curse that was on Ham to be the explanation for the curse, seemingly, that has come on the black race. And black people in our day have suffered greatly from that misconstruction of the Word of God. But because of prejudice, the facts of the scripture were twisted to make them come out with a particular theological conclusion. And there are many other such examples of the same thing. A man the other day wrote me a letter and challenged a piece of literature that I had sent out. It happened that on our summer term brochure that my secretary had been included in a picture of students, she being a student as well, and she had a dress that was several inches above her knees on. And this brother really chewed me out for not setting higher standards for our country and allowing our students to wear such disreputable clothing. I responded to the man by saying, brother, now I'm concerned about standards and I want to hold standards high and I'm sure that modesty must mean something today. But I'm not sure that God has given me the revelation as to exactly what it means. So would you please give me the chapter and verse that will tell me what hemline I should enforce? And if you'll do that for me, I'll be more than happy to put it into effect. The only problem with that is I can't find it in the Word of God, and neither can he. 
But you see, when the little school brings their girls along and makes them kneel down, and if their dresses don't touch the floor, then they have to go and lengthen their dresses, and they do that on the basis of the authority of the Word of God, that is a lie. They have a right to do that if they want to set that standard and say, we believe this to be the right standard in the light of the biblical principle of modesty. But they don't have the right to put God's authority on their interpretation of a biblical principle. Because that principle is relative, not absolute. As is evidenced by the fact that my mother's clothes were all below the ankle and anything above the ankle was considered unspiritual and by that standard none of you are spiritual. Now, suffice it to say that that's very meaningful when it comes to working up a theology, what hath God said and what hath God not said? And what deductions may I fairly draw from certain inductions of the Word of God and distinguish between what is a human deduction and what is a true induction from the Word of God? That's not always easy. In fact, it's rarely easy. Now, what is wrong with the traditionalist approach? Let me suggest some verses for you. Turn to Matthew 15. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees who were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, this is Jesus talking, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. And that'd be good for the children of God to understand, by the way, today. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now, which does God set in priority? He obviously sets the word of God, doctrine in priority, and it is a fault when a person lets tradition be a judge over the word. You hypocrite, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth near unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That makes it pretty clear as to what is supreme. That doesn't mean that there are not human traditions that ought to be followed. And Paul even says to Timothy that he is to keep the traditions which we've given to you. There are traditions, and there are customs. But when it comes to authority, it's the Bible that is authoritative over the tradition. And if the traditions don't square with the Scripture, you change the tradition. Not the Bible. 
give you one example where J.B. Phillips transgressed that principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The only place in the Word of God where he changes without any authority the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 14:22, when it says, Tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for those who believe not. He changes the text and says, not for those who believe not, but for those who believe. And down at the bottom he says, Paul was wrong here. And he's going by experience because believers today using ecstatic utterances forces him to the mold of actually changing the text. Tradition changed the authority of the text. God says, who are you to change the doctrine by human tradition? That's what he was referring to when he said to the Jews, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Laden with what? Laden with the traditions of the elders. And if you make yourself a student of history and go back and get one of the 17 volumes of the Babylonian Talmud, which were the traditions of the elders, you'll find out what he means. All right? That's one contrasting view to the evangelical view. And many people build their whole theological system right there. The third possibility is the subjectivist answer. And this is the answer of so-called Christian reason. According to this view, not only is Scripture not sufficient and perspicuous, clear in itself, but also it is not reliable in many cases. Now, the traditionalist is saying the Scripture is not clear, so it needs tradition to clarify it. The subjectivist who goes by his reason is not only saying that the scripture is not clear, but it's not accurate. And so it needs to be corrected by reason, science, history, literature, social, political, cultural issues, and so on and so forth. Here's a good example. Hal Lindsey and I and John MacArthur were engaged with the children of God for about two and a half hours, and they're set up over there across from Explo. And we talked at length with Deborah and Jethro. And for the first two and a half hours, you would have thought that they could have signed, I kid you not, the teaching position of our seminary, six pages long. They agreed with every last thing we said. In fact, they said, oh yeah, we believe in the Trinity and all that stuff. And we finally got to the end, and I said to Jethro, I said, you know, I've been trying to talk to you now for two and a half hours. But I've had a terrifically hard time doing it because your wife insists on butting in and giving the answer, so I can't get it from you. And I really want to find out whether you know anything and believe anything. And I said, therefore, I want to ask you, what do you do with Paul's statement, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man? And immediately... Deborah did keep her mouth shut, by the way, then, which was interesting. But Jethro responded by saying, oh, we believe that's one of Paul's pet peeves. I said, brother, you just told me more in two seconds than you told me in two and a half hours. You've been telling me you believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture and all the rest and so on and so forth, but you just told me right now that you don't because you take what you like and dismiss what you don't. 
And I went on to ask him, what about the letters you write? Are they inspired like Paul? And I was surprised to hear him hesitate. And then finally he says, well, he says, I think that what I write has authority to it. Maybe not exactly like Paul. It's amazing how people can affirm one thing, but then you really get them down to the test issue. Or another fellow said to me at IBS at Dallas, a med student back east and a sharp guy, he said, frankly, I cannot accept the concept of an eternal hell. He said, it does not square with my doctrine of what God is like. I cannot believe that God could ever enjoy people frying for eternity in hell. And I said, may I simply suggest to you, brother, that whatever you do with the eternality of hell, you must do the same thing with the eternality of heaven. Because in Matthew 25, 46, they are both eternal. And the same word is used for both of them. And by the way, it might just say in passing, that's one verse where the Seventh-day Adventists try to demonstrate that hell is not eternal and build their doctrine of the annihilation of the law because the word eternal is used and then the word everlasting. And they say, you see, it's different. That demonstrates the value of knowing the original languages. It's exactly the same word. It is not a different word. And this caused this fellow to think again. He was quite ready to dismiss the doctrine of eternal hell, but he was not quite so ready to dismiss the doctrine of eternal heaven. See, it didn't fit with his doctrine of God, but it does fit the Word's doctrine of God. So I would suggest to you, as a biblical answer to the subjectivist approach, that 2 Corinthians 10.5 presents a good statement, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is in a rather satirical portion, and he gets down to verse 5, and he says, Casting down imaginations, and you'll notice the marginal reading is reasoning. Casting down reasonings and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. So he says, there is no thought you have that should not be arrested and subjected to the obedience of Christ. That's your final standard. And when you make your reason to be the final test, just remember this fact, that your reason is on the basis of a finite mind, unless you happen to feel you are God, and you have a limited amount of observable data with which to investigate with your finite mind, and your mind, the scripture says, has been blasted by sin so that you warp the things that you do see. That doesn't say an awful lot for the mind unaided by faith. Paul says, therefore, bring them down. Cast down every reasoning that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and subject it to the obedience of the word of Christ. Don't let a thought run loose in your mind that's not subjected to God's word. That kind of takes care of the subjectivist answer. Fourth, there is the mystic's answer. 
to this problem of authority. The mystic would say that in addition to the scriptures, man's psychological and emotional makeup must be brought into play. And therefore, he would say that personal and religious experience sits in judgment over the word and is the final arbiter. What is your experience? So that scripture is to be interpreted by one's existential experience. Thus, they would have to say that the proper reason for believing something is because my personal religious experience proves it to be so. Now, that's probably the worst one of these that we face today because it's the most prevalent. We live in a day when the dictum is whatever feels good, do it. Every man is his own interpreter. Somebody says to me, look, I don't know Greek and I don't know Hebrew and I've never been to seminary, but I know this, I had this experience, and you can't take that away from me, so I don't care what you say the Bible says. I have an experience that goes above the Bible. I've been taught by the Holy Spirit. You hear that time and again. There's no answer to that. And there also is no authority except your own then. Because everybody's experience can only be authority for one person, namely himself. And in effect, what you have is no authority at all when experience becomes authority. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. So that when a preacher stands up on Easter Sunday morning and says, Oh, I know that Jesus Christ is alive today. And the reason I know that Jesus Christ is alive today is because I talked to him this morning. That is existential, subjective experientialism. You do not know that Jesus Christ is alive because you talked to him this morning. You know he is alive because God's word says so. And all you have to do is go back to your little train once again and remember that faith is in the fact, not in the feeling. There's a lot of people that can quote that who don't live by it. They may even be able to use the blue book very efficiently, but they don't live by it. Their faith is in their feeling and their experiences, and that becomes the test of orthodoxy for them. I have no confidence in your experience or mine. And I've come to the place today that when anybody ever says, but so-and-so is a godly person, and my, oh, my, they had this experience, and so on and so forth, I say, I'm sorry about that. But I don't trust my experience. I trust God's Word. And if you don't have the ability to get down and study God's Word, then don't bring your experience against me. Because I have. And you can too, if you will. But don't go the cheap way, the shortcut way of trying to pull a sham on God by excusing your non-study and saying, the Spirit of God taught me. The Spirit of God is not in the habit of blessing empty heads. The Spirit of God was not given to make study needless. He was given to make study effective. And that's why Paul could say to Timothy, Do your diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed because he is rightly dividing the word of truth. 
And that's an exhausting procedure. You say, well, what do I do then? Do I just chuck my reason at the door? Do I chuck my experiences? Do I forget all about experience and all about reason and all about tradition? No, you don't forget it. You just don't make it the authority. And you make sure that all these things come under the test of the authority. Now, what are three good things that you can use your mind for? God's not excusing you for not using your mind. What are they? Number one, first of all, reason that God has given you may receive God's teaching. That is, if you have a sound mind, and the scripture says that he has not given us fear, but power and a love and a sound mind, and if you have a sound mind, then that sound mind is capable of receiving the logical truth of God. John 7, 17, if any man wills to know of the doctrine, he will know. So that one thing your mind is good for is that it can receive the teaching of God for a regenerate person who is controlled by the Spirit. But never does he have a right to sit in judgment on the Word. Secondly, what else may reason do? Reason may apply the teachings of the Word of God to life. In other words, the teachings don't have to remain stereotyped, sterile doctrine out there, but God has given to us a measure of wisdom, which is the ability to apply knowledge to its proper end. And so I am able to take God's clear teaching and apply it to my life and see results from that. Thirdly, reason can communicate God's truth to others. Reason can communicate God's truth to others. Now there is a faithful use of reason rather than a faithless use of reason. Now, let me just mention the other presupposition, and I'm going to leave it there, that we didn't get a chance to deal with. A second presupposition, which must come under the intellectual requisite, is that Scripture is self-authenticating. Not only is Scripture final authority, but Scripture is self-authenticating. Now, some would say that's reasoning in a circle. But I submit to you, when it comes to the Scripture, you have no choice for this reason. First, we recognize that everybody has a right to speak for himself. And other things being equal, if man were not blighted by sin, that would be enough. Man's testimony. But today, we at least let a man speak for himself, first of all. And that's why Jesus could say in John 5, 31 and 8, 13 and 14, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. It's legitimate, then, to bear witness of yourself. So when someone says, well, you're using the Scripture to argue for the Scripture, well, the Scripture ought to be able to speak for itself, shouldn't it? Secondly, not only that, but some truths about people may never be known unless the individuals concerned themselves bear witness to them. 1 Corinthians 2, No man knows the things of a man save the spirit of the man who is in him. That is, I can't know what's in you unless you tell me. 
So secondly, it's legitimate for the scripture to bear witness about itself because I could not know some of the things of God were they not told to me here. Thirdly, if we believe the Bible not only claims to be but is a book from God, then God is its author. Now what does that tell me? God cannot lie. Therefore, what God has said must most certainly be true. And that would be the third reason why I'd want to hear from the Scripture as to what the Scripture says about the Scripture and all other doctrines. Because its author is God, and God is true, therefore the Scripture must be true. And what you say about the Scripture as it came from God, you must of necessity say of God. Fourthly and finally, when men wish to confirm witness given about themselves, they appeal to one greater. So what do we do? We appeal in oath and swear by Almighty God. Now, who was God going to swear by? Well, Hebrews 6, 13 to 18 tells you very clearly. God, because he could swear by no other, swore by himself. Now, if the Bible is the book of God, then it cannot be judged by another. For it's the final test. Therefore, you must examine it on its own merit. Which comes back to our first statement, that the Bible is final authority. It alone reigns supreme over my life.